0: We are in a series on the resurrection. I know that Easter was uh, a ways back, uh, but we've been talking about the resurrection around here uh, the last several weeks, and here's why. Um, I think that as a church, we spent uh, a lot of time talking about the resurrection in view of the past. And when we talk about resurrection in view of the past, we usually wanna prove the historicity of the event 2,000 years ago that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. That's an important endeavor uh, because according to Paul, the Apostle Paul, our whole faith hinges on his bodily resurrection. So it's a, it's a worthy endeavor to look at the past. We, when we talk about the resurrection, I think we also talk about it in a very future sense. In a future sense that um, just like Jesus rose from the dead, we too will have new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, that we use the resurrection as, um, as hope for the life that is to come. Again, very important, and yes, true. But what we've been talking about is, okay, what about today? What does the resurrection have to do? What are its implications for me today in 2018 as a Christian? And uh, I think what we've discovered uh, is that really the resurrection is the grounding for the whole moral life. Uh, That just as Jesus rose from the dead and rose to new life, uh, when we are converted and we receive the Holy Spirit, we too... Are brought to new life, and all of a sudden, we have the power to obey so much of what we couldn't obey before. Uh, so, we need to see well, well, what does this new obedience look like, this empowered obedience look like. So, we've been looking at different topics uh, today. We're talking about friendship, and really, if you think about it, um, in this whole set, the section John fifteen, um, where we find in, in John from John thirteen to seventeen, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is with his disciples. Uh, he's with His friends, and a lot of the time that he, that he, th- His big subject is the Spirit. That's what He's talking to them about, because when He ascends back into, when, when He dies, raises again, and ascends into heaven, they, He's going to leave them with the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus does rise from the dead, who does He appear to? He appears to His friends. So this whole issue of friendship and the resurrection are intertwined with each other. That's why we're uh, looking at it tonight. Uh, So, let's read John 15. This is the teaching of Jesus to His disciples, the 12. Um, And this is our passage under consideration tonight. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that another... Um, man, I got all mixed up. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your holy word. Uh, Lord, these uh, words that you spoke over 2,000 years ago are so applicable to us. And so Lord, I pray that you um, would make them come alive uh, to us, that you would apply these in ways that only you can. Do uh, You would apply them individually to us. Lord, I can't do that, uh, but you can. Uh, Lord, would you... Um, would what happens here be a demonstration of your power? We praise your name. Amen. Um, one of my favorite movies is an Adam Sandler movie. Um, no, not Billy Madison. Um, though it was pretty funny in high school. Um, my, my favorite movie of all time is an Adam Sandler movie, and it's called Rain Over Me. Anybody seen it? Rain Over Me? few of us. Um, some of you had to see it because I showed it to you when you were in Young Life back in the day. But... Um, I'm not saying it's the best movie. I'm not qualified to make that kind of pronouncement. But I can tell you that it's my favorite movie. Um, The two uh, main characters are Don Cheadle. His character's name is Alan. And then Adam Sandler, uh, whose name is Charlie. Uh, Both of these uh, guys are in New York City. They're old, old college friends. uh, But you don't know that at the beginning. You get introduced to each character. You get introduced to Charlie, Adam Sandler. And uh, Charlie, his hair's a mess. He's very disheveled. He's very, he's even disturbed. He seems as if he has a, a mental illness as you're being introduced to him. Um, but he's, he wears these headphones uh, that he has on full volume all the time, every minute that he's awake, uh, unless he's playing video games. If he's playing video games, he has those turned up really loud. Or if he's playing the drums, which is a very loud thing. So his whole life is full of noise. Why is that? Well, it takes a while, but you find out that the reason is he's trying to not remember uh, his reality. And his reality is that his uh, daughters and his wife were killed in a plane crash. Uh, they were in one of the planes that um, hit one of the Twin Towers in 9-11. And so he's really, really disturbed, and, and honestly, he's kind of a monster. <clears throat> then you've got Don Cheadle's character. Don, Don Cheadle is like um, the foil of... Adam Sandler's character—he's the anti-type, you could say—and uh, he's very successful. He's a successful dentist. His family looks great. I mean, he's got two beautiful girls. He's and his wife is great. And um, but what you find out is uh, that he, even though he's been so successful, that um, he's a mess too. Uh, he's just—he's um, real busy with his work. He's burdened uh, at home. His marriage is really on the rocks. And that's when he bumps in to to Adam Sandler on the street. And when he sees him, he's like, man, this isn't the guy I remember from college. This is a different person. And what you see throughout the movie is that their friendship makes them new people. Alan is no longer this isolated, busy, um, burdened person, but he's a loving person. Adam Sandler is no longer this isolated, disturbed, hurting man. He's a loving man at the end. But what does it? What transforms them? What's their friendship? That's the whole theme of the movie. And friendship is something that the scriptures have a lot to teach us, especially our passage tonight. So I want to ask our passage two questions. Uh, The first is, where does friendship come from? And the second one is, how do we know we have real friends? Where does friendship come from? We're going to see verses 9 to 11. And how we know we have real friends is in verses 12 to 17. I look at 9 to 11. And I want you, as we read this again, how many times Jesus uses the word love in the first two verses. And I want you to see the audiences, the characters that are involved here. Okay, um, As the Father has loved me, so I have I loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So we have five times. Who are the characters here? You have the father, you have Jesus, and you have the disciples. And if you were to put uh, the Father, Jesus, and the disciples on a piece of paper, and you began to draw arrows of who loves who, here's what you would find. You would find that the the Father and Son love one another. You would see that the Father loves the disciples. You'd see that Jesus loves the disciples. That's what we have going on here. And notice who doesn't do any loving in these verses. The disciples. You. Me. Their only responsibility in these three verses is to abide in the love of the Father and the love of the Son. In other words, their job is not so much to love God, but their job is to be loved by God. Their responsibility is more passive than it is active. And you see what happens. If they abide in his love, there's this massive payoff in verse 11. You see it? Joy. So Jesus' commands always, but very clearly here, the whole goal, the telos, the purpose of them is our joy. But notice where all this love begins. The love towards the disciples, the love towards us, finds its origin and finds its genesis in this relationship between the Father and the Son. And when you start hearing this language, especially in John chapters 13 to 17, you're getting glimpses of the Christian teaching of the Trinity. Uh, The Trinity is something a lot of people have a a, problem understanding, and that's for a really good reason. It's because it doesn't fit airtight logic. It's admittedly, it's a mystery how three persons can be distinct, yet one. But I would submit to you that the world really only makes sense if you believe in the Trinity. Here's why. You've got the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, they've been in perfect loving relationships with each other for all eternity. And because this love was um, so intense bef- between these three members, it overflowed and extended to all of creation. That's what's behind everything, is the love that the Father has for the Son and for the Holy Spirit, and all of them with each other. So the foundational principle of the world is love, is relationship. Um, This is wedding season. I'm doing four weddings in eight weeks, and um, I love it. It's a lot of free food and free drink. So I thank your parents for that. Um, But uh, what I'm reminded of, because I'm preaching it over and over and over again, is uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. And two. and what we see in Genesis 2 is that Adam is alone, and it's said that it's not good. Now remember, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, there's no sin yet. He has a problem, Adam has a problem, and it doesn't arise from his own sin. So think about it. it, it we have a lot of problems. Anger, pride, lust, jealousy, hatred are all problems that we have. And all of those problems arise from our fallenness. They arise from our imperfection. But then we have this other problem, loneliness. And this problem is different than pride and all the like because it arises from our perfection. See, loneliness is the one problem we have because we are like God. So the less that you need friends, the less that you think you need friends, the less you are like God. See, you're lonely because you're not a tree, you're not a machine, you're lonely because you're made in God's image who is himself a relationship. So when we have loneliness, and we have loneliness in a fallen world as opposed to Adam's world, uh, pre-fall, it's a massive problem. And we deal with it, I think, in really one of two ways. We deal with it by either ignoring our impulses that try to tell us we're lonely. And that ends up in our isolation. Or we move out into relationships not with a loving posture, but with a needy posture. I'm going to call that being codependent. So you can isolate yourself, or you can be codependent. Let's talk about isolation first. Um, Isolation is what happens when you ignore your need for friendship. And in my humble opinion, this is a problem that has reached epidemic levels in our society. The reasons are many, really. But there's one really great book, there's a really good TED talk on it too, by a a guy named Robert Putnam. And Robert Putnam, he wrote this book called Bowling Alone in 2000, okay? 18 years ago. Uh, You would think that his research that his findings would would hold no weight, because that's really what it is, it's a research book. But the title of Bowling Alone gets at what Putnam thinks is really going on in American culture, because who really bowls alone? Bowling's meant to be done with other people. So his whole thesis is that life is meant to be in community. But what he finds in America is these increasing rates of isolation. And so he gives it three reasons why there's increasing isolation. The first one is the pressure of time. The pressure of time. He said the busiest people in America are full-time workers, women, people aged 25 to 54, parents of young children, and single parents. Some of you just met all five of those criteria. (laughs) That means you have massive pressures on your time. And relationships are really hard when you're really busy. The second reason he gives for isolation is mobility. Uh, he says that nearly one in five of us move each year. Two in five of us move every five years, and we are 20 to 25% less likely to attend church, to volunteer, to go to club meetings, or to work on community projects if we think we might move compared to those who stay put. The result of moving a lot, or the result of mobility, as a decrease in our relationships, we're more isolated. The third reason he gives is technology. Um, now, he doesn't even know smartphones in 2000, so his stats are around TV. And his stats on TV are disturbing. Uh, so, if he had stats on technology, they would be even more disturbing. Or if he had stats on cell phones, they'd be even more disturbing. Here's what he says about uh, one of them that was on TV. Um, he says that uh, husbands spend three to four more time, much m- three to four times more time watching TV than they do talking to their wives. Okay, I bet you it's like five to eight times staring at their cell phones than talking to their wives. So do these resonate with you? Technology consuming a lot of media, busy making the extra buck, fulfilling commitments, thinking about moving somewhere that might fix your loneliness rather than attempting to make friends in the place in which you live. We think these are such a big deal here at our church, such a big problem, that we really wanna do something about it. Uh, We really wanna make relationships in our neighborhood groups a very, very high value we want to do this greeting of peace that we do every week. You might say, golly, I just stand around and have the same small talk every freaking week. I talk to the same people 10 minutes before and after church every week. Well, guess what happens when you do that every week over the course of your lifetime? You make friends. Really good ones, actually. But we're isolated. I think our other problem is uh, this thing. I- I'm, I'm using a clinical word, codependent. Um, Codependents usually don't look very lonely um, because codependents, they need to be needed by other people. It's a really kind of charming and admirable relational persona that they put off until you realize that these people are not really building their relationships on love but they're utilitarian, they're using you, they're getting their own needs met at your expense. See what happens, codependents need to be in control, and it's really easy to be in control when you just attract needy people, and they're the only ones who get any of your time. That's not a real friendship. That's having a savior complex. See, the bottom line is that codependents, they recognize that our loneliness is a bad thing. That's good, but then they go about it in the wrong way to get their needs met. See, our need for friends is profound. And it's so profound that no human being can bear that weight. People are going to let you down. But God doesn't. And that's why Jesus points us to remain in His love twice in these verses. He's the only one who can meet your need for loneliness. And it's only when He does that you can really be a friend out of love and not need. So here we've seen... Friendship comes from God. But how do we know if we have real friends? Well, that's what verses 12 to 17, I think, are really all about. In verses 12 to 17, Jesus enters another audience into the equation. Remember, we had the father, son, disciples. Now we've got father, son, disciples, and friends of the disciples. Relationships that the disciples have. That's the new fourth audience here. And He says it right there in verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So to put it another way, Jesus is saying that, love, that His love for us gives us the pattern for how we are to love one another. And then for verses 13 to 16, He gives us three marks of His love. His love is marked by sacrifice, access, and choice. Sacrifice, access, and choice. Look at his love for us right there in verse 13 uh, for sacrifice. He says, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, it kind of sounds like he might be talking to disciples like, hey, uh, John, why don't you die for Peter if Peter ever needs you to? But really what Jesus is alluding to here is he's saying, hey, I am your friend and I'm going to lay down my life for you. That's the kind of love I have. So there's this intensity and this quality of His love for us. His love for us, it's not trivial, it's not sentimental, it's not haphazard, it's not empty, it's not flimsy. It's got a deep, deep quality to it that's rooted in His sacrifice for us. Uh, recently, I was, Martin Luther is one of my favorites. I mean, he was an idiot in some ways, but he was great in some others. And... Um, He was a monk when he became a Christian. Let me say it again, he was a monk when he became a Christian. That means, uh, while a monk, he visited the poor, he visited the sick, he visited prisoners, he proclaimed the scriptures, he prayed a ton, and he was not converted. So what did it, how did he transform? Well, in his account, it really is simple. Uh, His sins became very personal to him. His sins were no longer theoretical to him. They were so personal to him because he saw Jesus as his friend. See, his, his sins were so personal to him that his friend had to die. That's really the key to Christianity. When Jesus is your friend and you see that He died for you, it becomes very personal and hurts very deeply, because His sacrifice wasn't just for the world, but it was for you. Think about driving. um, For instance, some of you may have road rage. Um, You may give the Christian middle finger from time to time, you know what I mean? And... um, you and I, we say things in the car that, to people who cut us off that we would never say to their face, let alone to a friend, right? Why is that? Why, why can we do that? Well, it's because those people don't have names and faces usually. We can't even see them. But that's the way we think of God. God is this faceless, nameless, unreachable person, just like the person who cuts you off that you never saw, But when you begin to see God as someone with a face, someone with a name, someone that you are friends with, it becomes something very personal. Because you have a personal relationship with him that's all rooted in sacrifice. Uh, Think about religious leaders. Um, All other religious leaders, you can only have an intellectual relationship with them. All you have is their teaching that you can know. But Jesus is so much different because we do have his teaching, but we have so much more. He offers us his teaching and he offers you himself. What does it look like for Jesus to offer you himself? Yes, we have his teaching, but when you begin to read his word, when he is your friend, words begin to leap off the page at you. Words begin to move around. You could read uh, uh, the same text one day and and then read it the next, and it says something completely different. Sometimes it feels like as you read His Word that He's taking this invisible highlighter and putting it over a sentence. He's putting it over a word in such a way that it has a profound impact on your soul. It's almost like the Scriptures become a part of you. How does that happen? It's because His Word is living and active, and you have a personal relationship with Him. And the only way you do is because of his sacrifice. Let me keep hammering this on I'll think about it another way. Um, one time I heard Tim Keller give an illustration of someone being lost. Um, uh, back in the olden days, when you got lost, you stopped at the gas station. Anybody remember that? About 13 of us. Um, uh, we'd stop at the gas station and uh, if the attendant was nice, they would, you know, get out a scratch piece of paper and, you know, left here, right here, go 1.1 mile, you know, they would do that. Um, but think about if, uh, the gas, if the attendant said, hey, you know what, to get where you want to go, it's really hard. And I'm afraid if I just give you directions and write them down, you'll never get there. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to hop in the car with you and go with you. That might sound kind of creepy to you, but... There's a really big difference between getting directions from a map or a person who knows how to get there goes with you. See, Jesus is saying to us in his sacrifice, he's saying, I'm your friend. I'm going to climb into your life with you. If you just want directions from Jesus, like a gas station attendant would write them down on a scratch pad, Jesus won't have it. Jesus won't let you control the relationship in that way. What Jesus will only allow is for him to hop into the car and get you there. And at that point, you really don't care if you get the directions or not because you have him. But all of this is rooted in his sacrifice on our behalf. It's personal. He's our friend. That's what his love looks like. So do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus? If you do, you can know that He is your friend." The second thing we see about His love for us, His friendship with us, is this access. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, He contrasts friendship, being friends, with being a servant. If you are a servant, you have to look up to your master. But when you are friends, you are eyeball to eyeball. You are peers. There is no org chart. There is no hierarchy. In servant-master relationships, servants don't get to know what their master's up to. That's what Jesus is saying here. A servant's duty is just to show up, go to work, do their job. Servants don't get let in on bigger picture decisions. A servant's value is only instrumental, only what they can do for the master. The servant is only of interest as long as he or she is productive. But a friend's very different, right? A friend's value is intrinsic. It's based on who they are and who they are alone. And when you have a friend, you have access to them. And that's Jesus' relationship with you. Yes, he does call himself king, and we are his servants. That is true. The disciples understood that. But what the disciples would have blown their minds is that Jesus is saying, But our relationship is so complex that I'm also your friend, I can be both. And then Jesus gives us another element, another characteristic, never mark of his friendship with us when he says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. But I chose you. Don't we as human beings think that we've got the initiative that it's always on us? And Jesus tells us right here, this just isn't the case. See, think about it. When Jesus, Jesus chose his disciples... This is a very common way that you would learn any trade. Jesus is this religious teacher. There were lots of religious teachers who all had disciples who learned from them. But in those situations, what would happen is that um, the disciples would choose their teacher. Jesus flips it around and he says, I am the teacher and I will choose you. He flips it on his head. And just like Jesus chose the disciples, he chose you. One day, He came along to you and rocked your world in a way that you were not expecting. And He said, come follow me. He came to us and He called us His friend. The initiative was with Him and the choice was His. So this is what our relationship looks like with Him. It's characterized by His choice of us, it's characterized uh, by our access to Him, and it's characterized uh, by His sacrifice. But right in here, we get a lot of language about our relationship with other people, too. Well, it models his relationship with us. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, you are my friends if you do what I command. So if we are making friends with other people, it's proof that we're friends with Jesus. And right here, you might say, yo, Marsh, I mean, I, I, I really love all that stuff about me being loved by God. And just I can't believe it. You're calling me to relationship, to, to, for horizontal relationships? I really like my isolation. I really like being needed. I really like being in Savior mode. And Jesus says, you can't have it that way. If that's your desire, it's untenable to Jesus. You can't have God and not have his people. So not only are our horizontal relationships a proof of our vertical relationship with Jesus, but horizontal friendships are the purpose Of our friendship with Jesus. Look at verse 16. Why did he choose you? You see that? Why did he choose you? He chose you to produce fruit. Now, fruit doesn't mean that you're going to start growing pineapples on your kneecaps. That's not what that means. And all throughout the scriptures, if you see the word fruit, you can find from its context what he means. What's the result he's talking about? Well, the result he's talking about right here in these verses is that um, it is our having friends with his people. So, fruit in your life is friendship. So, what, what do these look like? Well, look just like they do with him to us. They're based on sacrifice, access, and choice. Let's talk about sacrifice first. If you're going to have friend, a real friend with someone else, it's going to take sacrifice and it's going to be costly. Uh, This week I I read uh, a story about uh, this village that was on Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard is this island off the coast of Massachusetts. And um, from the 18th century into the 1950s, so for over 200 years, uh, in this little village, in 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 Martha's Vineyard, there was this sign language that everybody used. Everybody. 10% of the whole village was deaf. 10%. I mean, that's way higher than the rest of the population. And the reason it got that way uh, is because it was hard to get to Martha's Vineyard and it's hard to get out of Martha's Vineyard. So that means if you were born there, you lived your whole life there. And if you lived there in the small village and you never left, guess what you did? There was some inbreeding going on in Martha's Vineyard. And so this, this, the genetics got out of whack and it led to deafness. And the way that they... Uh, treat the, the way that they dealt with this deafness is that everyone knew sign language. Every single person in the village. Just like you knew English just like they knew English, they also knew sign language. There weren't any social services for the deaf on Martha's Vineyard, even into the 1950s, because they just weren't needed. Everyone knew sign language. That meant that deaf people were treated just like everyone else because everyone, not just a select few who knew sign language, could build a relationship with the deaf and be their friend. But it was costly because everybody had to learn it. So let me apply this to some social issues today. Um, Republicans think that they can cure social problems uh, by the private sector funding them. Democrats think that the government can fund social services and fix people. Jesus says the only way that real change is going to happen is friendship. But friendship's going to cost you something. Paying taxes, giving money and time to nonprofits are good things. We should do them. Professionals, uh, providing services is a good thing. But ultimately, people change because they're in friendship with each other. So friendship is costly. It also means that um, we have to give access, and we have to have choice in our relationships. Um, you guys know this whole thing of access. We either let people in too quickly, or we're classic overshares. You guys know what an over-share is, don't you? Either we take too long to let people in, and if you do, you're not giving them access to the real you. You're not telling them about your hurts, your folly, your struggles, your insecurities. And if you do all that, you're not going to have a friend. You're afraid that if you keep, that you keep all these things to yourself because you're afraid if you open yourself up, that people are going to yawn at best and flee at worst. But others of you, these kind of, I'm calling classic oversharers, they tell you everything all at once. All your hurts, all your follies, all your struggles, all your insecurities are dumped on you in 22 minutes. And you do it the first 22 minutes that you're in friendship. You probably aren't going to make a friend because you're looking for the person that you shared all that with to heal you. So what has to happen, there's gotta be this, there has to be a certain amount of choice involved in our friendships because you need someone else who's going to share at the same rate and the same degree as you. So there's an uh, an elective, a reciprocal quality to our friendships if they're going to work. Our friendships are about access, and they are about choice. So where are you tonight? Do you find yourself in isolation? Maybe Maybe you have friends. Maybe you're around people, but you're not really giving them access to your life. Maybe you've got some relationships, but the, t- the pressures of, of time just get you out of, out of whack and there's no intentionality in your life. Maybe there's no sacrifice. Maybe that your relationships really turn into all about you, what you're receiving from relationships, as opposed to asking the question, what does this person need from me? And I don't care how much it costs because I love them. Friendships are important. But they really only work because Jesus has chosen you. We aren't friends with God because we were good friends to Him. We were His enemies, and He made us His friends so that we might love others in the same kind of way that He has loved us. Let's pray. Father, it is... um, (laughs) mind-blowing that you would want to be our friend. Uh, The most important being in all of existence asks us to be his friend. Uh, So, Lord, forgive us for uh, forsaking that kind of access that we have to you, uh, that we have chosen uh, friendships with people over friendships with you. And Lord, I pray for those of us that friendship's really scary, really hard, uh, that you would help us just see what's one step forward? What's just just an ounce of resurrection power (laughs) applied to my life? What would that look like? Uh, Lord, be creative with us. In Jesus' name, amen.